it may be Oscar week in LA, but it was definitely First Amendment week in Washington. That was the theme of our event. The chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, General Mark Milley, gave an incredible and passionate speech about really uh, why he does what mm-hmm. he does, and he put the First Amendment at the heart of it. It was sort of um, it was jaw-dropping. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, March 13th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I are talking Washington. John and I recap some delicious highlights from Puck's event in DC last week celebrating the First Amendment. And we talk about a new journalism startup in Washington aimed at filling a supposed gap in Beltway media coverage. But we ask, isn't the Beltway media saturated enough? We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of Powers of the Beat. about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday here at the Powers That Be, it's Media Monday. I'm joined today by John Kelly, and we're going to resist talking about the brackets because our listeners don't like talking about sports. Instead, Mm -hmm. John... You successfully, along with our great team at Puck, fronted a lovely Puck reception at the French Ambassador's residence last week in Washington. I came in for it for the evening, saw a lot of old pals, Mm -hmm. um, saw a lot of people I avoided eye contact with. That happens in Washington. Um, (laughs) How are the reviews, man? I feel like it was like really fun. It was packed. Like I saw old friends, new friends, and you know, not to... I don't want to fluff ourselves too much, but like it was, it it blew my expectations away and shout out to everyone at the puck team who helped put this together. Well, that's nice to hear. It may be Oscar week in LA, but it was definitely first amendment week in Washington. That was the theme of our event. The chairman of the joint chief of staff, general Mark Milley gave an incredible and passionate speech about really uh, why he does what Mm -hmm. he does. And he put the first amendment at the heart of it. It was was sort of, um, it was jaw dropping. I wrote about a little bit of this in the, uh, in the backstory. And I think it, we had a, a wonderful event. I think it was great for, for the puck journalists, for our partners to be to be celebrated in that way. And, and to, I think also, I think we all sort of felt a bit of, of what we're building here. You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, when you throw a party and people show up, it's a wonderful feeling. And I think it, was, it, it felt very puck to me. At one point in the evening, I was sitting in that salon room with the piano player and all those red mm-hmm. balloons in the ceiling and and the neon line with the sentence that had been deleted from the First Amendment. And, you know, in one corner, there's Kara Swisher talking to George Conway. In another corner, and in one corner is uh, Senator Whitehouse from the great state of Rhode Island. The uh, great state of Rhode Island. <laughs> the Calamari state. And That's then in another right. corner are like three of the uh, political playbook journalists and... 
you know, there was Juliana Glover and Chris Licht standing a couple of feet away from Dylan in the room with where the spread was. It was great. It was a great night. It felt like us. I think that we try to show Washington that we're we're a little different. Uh, we see the world a little bit differently, and um, there's a there's a place for us in their media mix. So uh, great night all around. I had conversations around this, which is why I'm curious what your answer was, because everyone was busy mingling with their little networks and and meeting new people and sort of articulating this an answer to this question. Because like Washington is oversaturated with media and reporters, all of whom are claiming to peel back the curtain and show you the real Washington. Mm-hmm. How what did you say when when presented with that question? Like, how are we different? Well, you know, I think that we stand out in a couple of ways. First of all, our editorial and business strategy is aligned in that we we want to sort of take the best of each of these worlds that we cover. That allows us more differentiation mm-hmm. and uh, more opportunity. And, and we allow these worlds to sort of learn about each other, which I think was the old Vanity Fair trick that um, certainly I learned from Graydon where at the end of the day, you know, political people really do know their world. They actually also want to know what's going on in, in Bellany world. They, you know, or want to know what's going on in Dylan's notebook and people from Silicon Valley want to know what's going mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, vice versa in DC. So mm-hmm. there's a bit of that. And I think the other piece too is there's a sort of New York view of the world that I think Puck can bring to Washington where mm-hmm. we're not actually competing with the Washington Post or Politico or the New York Times because why bother? They, they, they've got that waterfront covered. I think we recognize that there is a world of reporting and analysis that we can offer that goes beyond what their mandate calls for. And it is um, it is the quiet part out loud, as you say, all along. Mm-hmm. I think you can do a lot more in media with less. You know, one of the opportunities of large news organizations is that obviously they can cover everything. They can cover the waterfront. One of the downsides, and you and I both know this because we spend a lot of time in these places, is that the bigger you are, the more sclerotic you can be and, and, and the more um, people who are outside this business don't realize just the human impact that can dissuade people from doing great work. I was talking to a fantastic journalist the other day who was explaining how um, at one of the biggest news organizations in the world, there are colleagues that are just basically you know, make it their job to sort of fact check their other colleagues to ensure that they don't do things that discredit the brand. And, and at the end of the day, I think that that's counterproductive. We're all adults here. So mm. Puck can be more in uh, occasionally more insightful, certainly more delicious. And I think Puck is unafraid to go where, where uh, others will not. And uh, that's a part of our value proposition. Yeah, I think part of that is a, related to a conversation I had with a couple Republicans that were there. And they were talking about a podcast that I had recently done with Tara and a Q&A I had done in The Best and the Brightest with Tara, sort of about DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin and just having a natural conversation about Republican politics in a way that wasn't just totally dismissive of Republicans as just like maniacal racist lunatics, which, look, by the way, a lot of them are. But I think we don't reflexively unfurl a middle finger at the right. And I think a lot of political media has done that. And some of that is fair and some of it is not. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I think they just said that, like, we respect your sensibility and that you're willing to call balls and strikes. And obviously, I think we all know in the media, the truth is not between somewhere right down the middle between Republican and Democrat. It's the best obtainable version of the truth, whatever that is. But, you know, I think we have enough experience covering Democrats, Republicans, the White House, Congress, campaigns, like between us, we're able to sort of like see where the northern light is. And I just felt like it was kind of rewarding to be told like, look, I still think you guys are liberal, but at least you're more fair than the rest of them. (laughs) And like that's that's kind of like a a, a nourishing thing. Um, I think there's a hunger out there, not for like 
centrist content, but for content that at least smells fair to people. And, you know, there's a reason that Ben LeBolt, the new White House communications director, was there. And a reason that there were many Republicans from Capitol Hill and various party committees there. Like, it's just, you know, again, I think that happens all over D.C. probably. But I just it was nice to hear that articulated out loud. Well, that's nice. And we'll, we'll do our listeners a service and stop talking about ourselves in one second. And I'll just say that, that uh, <laughs> what, what, I, the way I interpret all that, because I've heard various versions of it before, is um, we hope that Puck is and remains fresh. Um, DC has been covering DC in its DC language and its DC Brooks Brothers outfits for a very, very long time. And sometimes just by being the sort of New York and L.A. people, we offer something that's a little bit different. Even if Tara and Tina and Julia live in town, they all, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, come to it with a very, very different sensibility. And yes, nobody wants to relitigate the wars between the Democrats and the Republicans. I I get feedback on this podcast all the time that I seem like the most Republican person who ever came out of Greenwich Village. Um, We have a very pro-success attitude here at Puck, and take that for what you will. Um, All right, enough about us, for real. When we come back, I want to talk about a starry-eyed new startup coming to Washington, apparently, and whether there is room for another ad-supported, fair, unbiased news organization in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. John, before the podcast sort of knocking around what we should talk about. And you sent me a link to this New York Times article about a group of journalists and financiers who -hmm. want to start something called The Messenger in Washington. And this is the brains behind The Hill, not the original Hill, but the version of The Hill that became an SEO monster over the last 10 years, really became a click-oriented, but still very successful business uh, and was sold for over $100 million, I think, at some point a couple of years ago. Um, can you explain yeah. what the messenger is, who's behind it, and what this business is supposed to look like? So this is the brainchild of Jimmy Finkelstein, sort of a Palm Beach legend at this point. He, he owned uh, mm-hmm. The Hollywood Reporter, or at least was a, a part owner of it for years. Um, I think his father was a, a publisher, and he... Uh, he owned the hill and sold his next star for 130 million dollars. He, he turned it. Uh, he he sort of moved it from being a inside the Beltway rag to being a much more populist news organization. And uh, it, it for a while it did the pivot into video very very hard. I don't know if that worked. I met Jimmy once. He reached out to us when he was beginning this journey. We chatted a little bit. Nothing excessive. He raised a lot of money. He raised 50 million dollars. I think the most interesting investor mentioned, at least in the Times report, is is Josh Harris, who's the uh, uh, who made his money at Apollo. He owns the 76ers. He is trying to buy the commanders from Jeff Bezos uh, or or he's vying with Jeff Bezos to buy the commanders. And, you know, he's uh, one of the, I guess, the sort of second generation of private equity billionaires. And so, you know, th- this is this is seriously equitized. So I think first and foremost, $50 million, like whether this works or doesn't work, they're going to have a fair amount of runway here. They're trying to hire 175 journalists uh, all wow. around the country, New York, LA, Washington. When I talked to Jimmy, I actually expressed my own surprise at that. I, I think that the trend in media, I, I think of it as almost like tier two media, meaning affinity-based media, not not um, New York Times or CNN type media, is towards smaller and bespoke and, and deeper, uh, not wider. Jimmy sees mm-hmm. something different. God bless him. I think that all investment in this space is good and, and that this will be helpful to all of us. It seemed to me like like semaphore and steroids. 
that was my initial read. Uh, the top editor comes mm-hmm. from People, so maybe it has more of a um, a populist view. I don't think it's going to be as sophisticated as, as Semaphore by intention. And the most interesting detail to me is that the president is none other than Richard Mad Dog Beckman. And I can't put into words, Peter, what a character <laughs> this guy was when I worked at Condé Nast. So he was the publisher of Vogue, and then he was the CMO. Uh-huh. His signature event was something called Fashion Rocks, and then I think he started something called Movies Rocks. They were, they were these awful made-for-TV events that were sellable. The company made a lot of money off of them, and they created what were basically sort of uh, advertorial magazines. And, and Beckman was a sales okay. hound and, and sold them. That, anyway, no, notable because you know when we talk about the glory days of the sort of three martini lunch Condé Nast publisher, like that was Mad Dog, English guy, looked a lot like Bob Hoskins, although according to this New York Times uh, photograph, not not as much like Bob Hoskins as he used to. He there are a lot of reasons why he left Condé Nast, and I'm going to let everyone Google them. But he ended up working at Vice somehow. I actually remember hilariously, I was in a meeting at Vice. Uh, one alternative sliding door reality was that I actually pitched the Hive to Vice before bringing it to Vanity Fair. So I was having a meeting there with a bunch of like adult hmm. teenagers who, who were um, trying to figure out if they were going to invest in this or not. And I remember seeing out of the corner of my eye, Mad Dog in this like, you know, he lived in Greenwich, <laughs> I think. And he was in his 50s already by then. And he was wearing like 50s kind of rich guy, uh, but works uh-huh. at a cool place outfit, like tartan his <laughs> shirt with a, with a sleeve rolled up to, to, to reveal some sort of other pattern. Mm-hmm. Tight, but not scarily tight jeans. He was wearing New Balance sneakers, which, you know, he this is a guy who used to wear like $2,000 John Lobb shoes. And it was just uh, hilarious to see him in such a strange, different context. And then yet to see him again this morning in this suit with Jimmy Finkelstein in his third life. I just thought, holy shit, man. This is a media character, and I respect these guys. Don't hate the player, hate the game. He has lived many, many lives, and this was not an incarnation. I thought I'd see him coming back in. So this is a loaded crew. Like, like there, there is a reality show element to Finkelstein and Beckman getting the band together, coming up with a plan that looks like it's more Web 2.0. I mean, this seems like a strategy that's a little bit more BuzzFeed than it is um, the information. But they see something that I don't see, and uh, and God love them, yeah. uh, and give them a chance to to do it. And and certainly, um, I think that the the market will benefit from all the hiring they're going to do. Here's a Ben Mullen uh, sort of wrote this little story that we're talking about in the New York Times, and he has a sort of sneering, contemptuous New York Times phrase in here, a very New York Times phrase, uh, and he called the Hill a quote middle market chronicler of Washington. <laughs> I politics. saw that. I saw that. I saw that. And <laughs> The, the ivory tower crowd might snoot at uh, something like that, but that might be the lane, you know, like, like just like very basic, straightforward, you know, uncomplicated, quote unquote, unbiased news coverage for right. normie middle America. And like, I'm, I'll never forget this conversation I had with um, Terry Sullivan, who was Marco Ruby advisor, I think still is. Mm-hmm on his 2016 campaign. And Terry was at the Puck event the other night, looking dashing. Very, very dashing. He and I met way back, way back in South Carolina when I was an embed there and he was working for Romney and ran ran a consulting firm down there before going big national. But Terry told me this funny story one time. I think we were in New York walking around when he was in town. And he was like talking about how, this validated all of my worldviews about like political media, by the way. He's like, all of you political reporters, like, write for each other. 
yes, there's mm-hmm. some value in placing a scoop or getting some tidbit of news in Politico, Washington Post, New York Times, whatever. Like, so you guys all cover it and it gets covered on TV, blah, 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 because that stuff drives other media. But he goes, Absolutely. especially if you're a Republican, he's like, I would much rather place a story if I have a Republican candidate in very boring legacy digital outlets. So he said CNN.com, where mm-hmm. I used to work, AOL.com, Yahoo News. He's like, people in D.C. think that these brands are very, very lame and unsexy. But he's like, old people who vote read that shit you know they like still so a lot of people still log on to aol.com right they do it's not cool like a lot of that stuff is sputtering some of it is dying but the messenger could sort of just be doing that kind of content and then spraying it all over like facebook or whatever and maybe they can monetize that who knows so i i'm all for the like, let's be optimistic and supportive of new entrants because this stuff takes guts. It really does, and especially for a guy like Finkelstein who's already rich, who's already in his seventies. He doesn't have to do this at all. You know, there, mm-hmm. there's a boat with his name on it somewhere, or some Palm Beach bath club, or whatever. I'm, I'm not schooled on, on which is the, uh, the the in or the out bathing club down there, but here, <laughs> editor, I'm assuming this guy Dan Wakeford's a very smart guy. Here's the challenge, I think, as I would imagine it. You're making a good point about about what will be editorially resonant. I think that they are possibly going to have to pick a lane here, and and the Times story clearly uh-huh. is an announcement, right? Like they're they're not revealing everything, uh-huh, but uh-huh. there's absolutely a world that let's call it the world of Matt Drudge, where you see this kind of pop Republicanish, you know, it's kind of da- a little bit of Daily Mail, a little bit of pop politics that's really really successful and drives an extraordinary audience, a possibly unreplicable audience, but extraordinary audience that makes a ton of money in display and programmatic advertising. But mm-hmm. it does so because it has very few fixed costs. The thing about Matt Drudge is almost like Uber or Airbnb. He's not hiring a team of 175 journalists. He's link sharing and he's just putting them on his platform. If you want to build out a huge property and sell intently advertising against it, I'm sure they're going to run into some consumer packaged goods and, and popular Daily Mail adjacent type advertisers who just don't want politics, want nothing, want no mm-hmm. connection to it. You know, political advertising usually tends to attract either corporate social responsibility advocates, you know, big companies telling their story like Google or Meta, or way up the food chain, super specific people who might, you know, Lockheed Martin, who might be, you know, trying to reach a certain um, congressional staffer and, and want to be in, in Punchbowl. The brands that advertise on the broad web are like skims it's like you know i mean everywhere i go on the on the internet this week i'm seeing ads for the oscars and that's not a surprise will they be able to monetize that at scale with those low cpms i don't know that's a challenge i imagine though that i hope that their past successes don't inure them from the reality that with startups you should build slowly and i hope they don't hire all those dozens and dozens of people all at once because i bet that they'll learn a thing or two along the way as they scale that'll help them scale even more that's totally true. And Ben uh, in the New York Times, Ben Mullen, also pointed out correctly that the Washington Post, News Corp, Vox, like a bunch of D.C. organizations have laid off people <laughs> over the last couple of years. So it's not the best time, maybe, to be hiring. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for your insight, buddy. I love it when you talk about Washington. Have a good week and I'll see you in the Slack. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. 